Well, this fall for our family has been a transitional time for a lot of different reasons. But one of them is that our youngest two kids, who are twins, they turn five, and so they have started kindergarten, which means we have officially left behind us the baby, the toddler, and the preschool stages, and we are just full steam ahead with school-aged kids. And I'm not going to lie to you, it feels like we have arrived. I sleep so well at night. It's wonderful. And kindergarten is the best. It's the cutest. It's almost like you can see their little brains growing behind their eyes as they take in so many new things. They pile into the car after school every day, and they're talking over each other, trying to tell me all about the life cycle of a pumpkin or how bats use echolocation. We talked a lot about echolocation for a couple weeks, and there was also the story of the kid who snuck the scissors in the corner and chopped off a bunch of his hair when the teacher wasn't looking. So they're learning lots of new things, right? Not just the ABCs and the one, two, threes, but also the rules of going to school. At our school, they have taken all of the rules that they have and they've broken them down into three categories. So they say everything falls under the category of being respectful, responsible, and safe. I love these words. I can get behind these. And from the moment that those kindergartners step onto campus, they are bombarded with these three words. They sing songs about them. They do worksheets about them. The teachers talk about them. They play games. And as you walk around the campus, there's all these signs that say, here's how to be respectful, responsible, and safe at the lunch tables or on the playground or in the classroom. Everything the kids do is guided by these three words. And they're trying to make it simple because the hope is that as these kids are confronted with new situations or new choices to make, that they will make choices that most of us would consider respectful, responsible, and safe. These three words open up a larger understanding of how to be a successful student at school. In the same way, the passage that we've come to today is short. It's just two verses, but they encapsulate so much more. It's almost like Paul is telling us, hey, as you go about the Christian life, hold on to what's most important. Hold on to these words. And I hope that you've been with us in our study so far through chapter one and the first part of chapter two, because as we come to Colossians two, verses six and seven today, We're going to look back a little bit at where we've been, and we're going to peek a little bit into the future, because these verses say so much. In fact, some commentators have said that these verses are a summary of a lot of what Paul is saying in the whole letter. Like the rules at my kid's school, they're direct and to the point, but also opening up the door to more, more profound truth for the Colossians and for us. So if you'll follow along with me as I read, in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul's encouraging the Colossians to remember what they have been taught, to remember when Epaphras came and he brought the gospel and some people were saved and the church was started. He's saying, hold on to that. He assures them that because Christ Jesus is 
the Lord, they have a firmly rooted salvation. They're being made to look more and more like Christ, and they have many, many reasons to be thankful. The life of a Christian, those of us who follow Christ as Lord, our lives should be characterized by that same steady commitment, growth, and gratitude. Because like Paul was calling the Colossians to this, for us it's really the same. When we're faced, the tempta- when we're faced with the temptation to drift or to flounder, or we hear things that contradict the truth of the gospel, or when we're just distracted, we have to remember what is true. We must be discerning. And to rightly understand who Christ is and what God has done for us is going to make us steadfast and grateful people. The gospel changes our lives. The whole of our lives is reoriented to follow after Christ, to follow Jesus as our Lord, as our boss. That means that we're going to take the truth of the gospel with us everywhere we go, to our classrooms, to our playgrounds, to our lunch tables. And every day, every choice is impacted by Christ. It's all, it's all about him. Paul's saying, never forget that it's about him. He says, walk in him, rooted and built up in him. I think it's important that we make the gospel, the good news, a part of our daily routine. If you'll write down point number one this morning, remember the gospel every day. Remember the gospel every day. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul starts with therefore, so we have to ask the question, right? What is the therefore, therefore? Meaning we have to look back. He's drawing a conclusion. He's saying, in light of everything that I have just said, now, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We have to go back and see what it is that he has told us about Jesus. And you can look back at almost every single verse in chapter one in the first part of chapter two and find a description or a, some details and some characteristics of who Christ is. Paul's bringing all of those together when he says, remember Christ Jesus the Lord. Remember when in chapter one, verses four and five, it says, Jesus is the one that you have faith in for salvation. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus is the one who gives power, might, endurance, patience, and joy to do the good works that produce fruit. In chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus is the one who has delivered you from the domain of darkness. In 14, he's the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he is the one who has created all things and holds all things together In 18, he is preeminent in everything. In chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus is the Lord, the one who is fully God. In 127, he is the hope of glory. In chapter 2, verse 3, he is the one who holds all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Remember him? Remember Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, just as you received the information about him from Epaphras and you received the person of Christ by believing and putting your faith in him, now walk in him. Keep going. Stay the course and don't lose sight of who he is. Don't let distractions keep you from the path that was laid out so clearly by Epaphras and now by Paul and really by God through both of them. And that phrase, walk in him, that means your daily conduct. As you go about your daily activities, don't forget 
who Jesus is or what he has accomplished for you. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I was running errands recently with my oldest son, and I can't even remember what it was that I saw. It was a billboard or an advertisement or something, and I pointed it out to him, and I said, you know, when I see things like that in the world, it makes me so grateful that my hope is in Christ and not in myself or in other people. To which he responded, I feel like parents do a lot of that. And I said, a lot of what? And he said, pointing things out so that they can make a lesson about it for their kids. And I said to him, dude, that is literally my job. (laughs) I said, Deuteronomy 6 tells me that I'm supposed to talk about God's words as I go about my daily life. I said, I'm just doing what God told me to do. He said, yep, and you just did it again. (laughs) But let's look at these verses for a minute because the principle that God is laying out for the Israelite people is the same for us today. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We tell our kids, love God with everything that you are. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, saying, find ways to talk about God all the time. Verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, saying, fill your life with reminders of God's words. And why is this important? Why are the Israelites to talk about the words of God and to fill their life with reminders? Because, in verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you... So when God fulfills his promises to you, when he does what he said he was going to do with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat and are full. So when God not only fulfills his promises, but when he goes above and beyond everything that you need, verse 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the same for us, ladies. Oh, how easy it is for us to forget because we are full, so to speak. We are well taken care of. We have so many good gifts. That's what makes it so much easier for us to forget the one who brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, the one who brought us out of slavery to sin and made us righteous. One way that we combat this forgetfulness is to talk about the gospel as we sit, as we walk, when we lie down, when we rise. Pay attention to the world around us. We know that the heavens declare the glory of God. We know that the earth testifies to its creator. So look for opportunities to talk about God and God's truth in everyday life. If you notice something, say something about it. We can post reminders around our house or in our cars. This is why we talk a lot about post-it notes, right? Here in Women's Bible Study. Post those reminders where you can see them. Also, if you go to Hobby Lobby, you can cover every wall in your house with scripture. (laughs) How do we fight that forgetfulness in other areas of our life? With reminders. So let's set some good reminders of the gospel. And really, the best way to remember is to say it. 
to preach the gospel to yourself every day, to remind yourself that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven, that he rose again so that you can live with him forever, and that he has given you his spirit so that you can follow him as your king. And tell other people too. Any opportunity you have to say the gospel, say it. And if you're not good at it, just say it more and you'll get better at it. If you feel weird or awkward, try teaching kids about Jesus. They are very forgiving. They will listen to you. And if they're good Sunday school kids here, they'll even help you out when you forget what to say. The Colossians needed to hold fast to the preeminence and the lordship of Christ because what we're going to hear about in the next passage is that they're going to be confronted with philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition, which is not according to Christ. He is the measure. He is the standard. And that list that we looked at from the letter so far, for anyone to cause doubt on any of those things that we have told, we've been told are true about Christ, that would be leading away from Christ Jesus, who is the Lord, who is the only one who can save. But Epaphras and Paul were messengers, and they were only two messengers among many. This was a time and place that they received information through either word of mouth or by circulating letters around. So it was really important that they knew how to be discerning because a voice could come in from a new place with something new to say, and they had to decide if that was what was true or not true. And sometimes it contradicted what they had learned, and sometimes it was mostly true, but maybe just a little bit different. It's why in so many of Paul's letters, he makes Jesus and the gospel the most prevalent. For us, we don't, we don't receive information the same way. We have so much more access to written material and videos and digital streaming, and the passing of information in our day is very, very fast. We are no longer waiting on someone to come from a far-off place with a spoken word or with a letter for us. But that does not mean that we have it any easier. There are people within our current age whose job title is influencer, meaning that they make their living off of telling us what we want and what we need, and they have a lot of tools to do it. Are we being discerning, or are we letting a strong and a passionate voice or a visibly appealing aesthetic be our source of information? Because false teaching and cultural pandering and fear-mongering can sometimes look pretty, or it can sound logical and caring. But that's not what makes it true. What is true will always point us back to Christ Jesus, the Lord. Truth will always affirm what the Bible has told us about who Christ is. To say anything else or anything less is a lie. So be aware and continue walking in him. Keep the straight path forward. Because on the positive side, we also have something that they didn't have in Paul's day. Not only do we have his letter to the Colossians in our Bibles, on our devices, in our language, accessible at any moment that we want to, but we also have his letters to the other churches. We have the teachings of Jesus. We have the prophetic teaching about the future of our world. I wonder how often we're taking advantage of that access to arm ourselves against what tries to distract us. We have to think about it like filling our lives with more things that affirm the truth of the gospel and teach us how to follow after Christ and weed out the distractions, making the best use of our time. 
Now, what I'm not saying is that you can't every once in a while sit down with your family and watch a movie or a cooking show or take a stroll around your neighborhood without also listening to two sermons at the same time. But we know, we know when we have filled up too much time with things that are a distraction or take our eyes off what we know is true. We know because we start to see an increase in fear, anxiety, sinful thoughts, covetousness, and pride in our lives. So maybe it does mean a little bit more Elizabeth Elliot podcasts and a little bit less true crime podcasts. Or maybe it means a little bit more worship music and a little bit less political news. What can you cut out today, cut back on, and replace in order to focus your mind on Christ? Because then the natural result in that shift in our thinking is going to play out in our actions. It's going to change the way that we live. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says, I am a follower of Christ, ought to walk in the same way that Christ walked. To walk in Christ is to live a life patterned after his. Our daily conduct is focused on him and following after him. And Paul could have easily said to the Colossian people what he said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, when he said, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 sounds a little bit like Colossians 2.6, right? Just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk. If things are going well in your daily commitment to following Christ, that's great. Let there be more and more. If you have ever renovated one room in your house, then you know what Paul is talking about here. Because you can spend a lot of time and a lot of money making that room look amazing. And then what happens? The other ones start to look a little bit shabby. Once we make a change in one area of our life, we are not done. Rather, other areas of our lives are going to start to stand out in ways that they didn't before. That's the Christian life. Just as you are doing, do so more and more. But the good news is we're not alone in this lifelong constant renovation. In fact, we aren't even doing all the hard work. Paul's going to go on back in Colossians 2 verse 7. It says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. It's important as we look at this list, rooted, built up, and established, that we notice that these are passive verbs. These are all actions done toward us by God. He is the one who roots, builds up, and establishes believers. It's our job to pay attention to that, to see the way that he is making changes in our lives, to notice what he's doing. Let's write down point number two this way. Recognize the work of God in your life. Recognize the work of God in your life. The beginning is our salvation, right? He starts it all by being the one who justifies us. Rooted in him is the beginning of our relationship with God, our salvation. It is the moment of justification. 
Maybe it brings to mind thoughts of Jesus talking about the good soil that receives the gospel and it takes root and it bears fruit. I was thinking about roots and I was thinking about when there was a time that we lived in Phoenix, Arizona and um, there's a lot of sand in Phoenix. It's very brown everywhere that you look. But when you look up, the skies are very, very blue because 99.9% .9 of the time, they are clear and bright, usually because it's very, very hot. Um, but sometimes it's just a little bit warm. There's only a few days a year, though, when storms will come into that area. And when they do, the terrain is not ready for them. Because of the soft sand and the lack of strong, regular weather, the trees in Phoenix don't always have deep roots. In fact, it's not uncommon after a storm to see maintenance crews out replanting the trees that had fallen over the night before. I remember driving into a parking lot, and there was a whole section of the parking lot that was closed because it was covered in felled trees. They had no deep roots. They're these wimpy, skinny-looking trees, and it kind of looked like they just gave up in the middle of the storm and just fainted to the ground. <laughs> the sand had shifted beneath them because of running water or because of the wind, and nothing was holding them upright anymore. Compare that image in your mind to the sequoias that are north of here. Tall, strong, deeply rooted trees that stand up straight for hundreds of years. Because when God is the one who is planting our roots, you know that they are deep and wide enough to hold us steady regardless of what storm may come in. In Jeremiah chapter 17, not that long ago in our daily Bible reading, we read about a tree. Jeremiah 17 verses 7 and 8 said, says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, and it does not cease to bear fruit. To be someone who is firmly rooted by God, whose trust is the Lord, is to be someone who is not easily swayed or knocked down by worldly information or moved by the current cultural emotions. Of our own strength, we are some pretty pathetic fainting trees, but in Christ, we are stable and steadfast. The next description from Paul in Colossians 2 verse 7 is built up in him like a building. Now he's shifting from talking about agriculture to architecture and it's not actually the first time that he does this and I think it's important to see that there is there is truth to the deep roots that must be there for a tree to stand tall and then we're going to talk about then what happens when you're building a building and you're stacking things on top of each other and it's growing upright on a strong foundation. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul has a little bit more to say about this. It says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And you can understand that connection, right? 
A tree must be firmly rooted in order to grow, and a building will stand strong when it's built on a firm foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, the Lord. But clearly, God is the one who is credited with the growth in what's planted, and Jesus is the foundation of the building. It says it straight there. God's field, God's building. He does the heavy lifting. So if being rooted is our justification, the moment of our salvation, being built up in him, this is our sanctification. This is God's daily construction in our lives so that we look different over time. Because like that renovation that I mentioned, when God makes an investment of grace and mercy in your life, he does not leave you the same way that he found you. No, he's going to knock down walls and he's going to rebuild so that you begin to look more and more like Jesus And that means loving God and loving people means opening up your Bible and reading what God has to say and letting that impact the way that you love him and love people in your daily life. Letting the truth of scripture change the way that you live. Finding out how to do things God's way. And that's going to be a really fun passage that we're going to get to in Colossians chapter 3 when we're going to talk about what it looks like to put off or put away what we formerly used to be and what we are going to put on in its place now that we are following after Christ. Continuing on, the last description in that list of God's work in our lives is established in the faith. When you hear the word established, think confirmed, settled, verified. It's like a legal term for saying the deal is done. Because when we have rightly received the gospel with repentance and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are rooted As we mature and God makes us look more and more like Jesus, we are being built up. And the confirmation of those two is how we know that we have a settled account with God. And it's all a gift of God so that none of us can boast. When you look at your life, do you see those descriptions rooted, built up, established? Can you point to a time when God changed your heart and put down deep roots? Can you see how you have grown and changed over time, setting aside your way and choosing God's way? Are you known as someone who is steadfast and firm in the face of chaos and uncertainty? Can you look at sinful things in your life that maybe at one point were acceptable that now you give no space to? And do you see how God has used people and opportunities to change the way that you think and ultimately the way that you act, because there will be change in your life. My husband was explaining this to some college students recently, and he said, traditionally, we call it the Christian life, the Christian walk. We don't call it the Christian nap. We don't call it the Christian, I'm going to sit in my recliner chair until Jesus comes back. That's not a thing. Because it is true that God saves and God grows, and he gets all the credit. But that is accomplished through our daily obedience. He grows us by orchestrating the situations of our lives in such a way that we are given opportunities to trust him. And remember that list from Colossians, again, about who Jesus is? We're trusting in that Savior, the one who is preeminent, the Lord, the one who holds the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the hope of glory. He is worthy of our trust. Sometimes that's hard for us to understand as we go about our daily life because he's not standing right next to us telling us in our ear everything that we're supposed to do. 
but have you ever held the hand of a child in close proximity to danger? Maybe there's a body of water or a busy street, and you tell them, hold my hand, stay with me, don't let go. But you also know that no matter what, you're not going to let go of their hand, right? In that moment, you are leading them the way that they should go, and you're going to make sure that they stay the course, even if they're pulling in the wrong direction or doing a little dance or trying to get away. It's like God telling us to trust him and to hold tight to him and to follow him and don't let go. And we can try and pull in our own direction, right? Because we think we know better, or maybe we just don't understand the danger of drifting from him. But that's going to make the whole situation harder for us. Because regardless of our wavering, if we're his kids, he has got our hand tight no matter what. Things are just going to go better if we do what he says and we don't have to be dragged along. When we get to the end of our passage here in Colossians 2, 7, we see some clear instructions for us as to how we are to respond to God's work in our lives. Colossians 2 at the end of verse 7, it says, abounding in thanksgiving. When we understand who Jesus is and what God has done and continues to do for us, how can we avoid being thankful? And I think it all starts with that first gift, the gift of our salvation. In several places throughout the New Testament, Paul shares his testimony. He talks about when God rooted his life and set the trajectory toward Christ. One of those examples is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's going to talk about who he was before and who he is now. 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 12, it says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saving is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Those of us who are real Christians in the room, we have a time in our lives when we stood against the Lord, like Paul. When we said that when he says he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, we loved and worshipped the creature, ourselves, more than the creator. If you read through Romans 5, Paul has a not-so-much-pretty description of us before Christ. He uses words like weak, ungodly, sinful, enemies of God, deserving his wrath. But God. But God showed his great love for us in sending Christ to die for us. We were dead, but God made us alive in Christ we all have a testimony, and like Paul, there is that moment in time when by the grace of God, we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness, of disobedience, of self-worship, to the kingdom of light and worshiping the Lord. Do you tell your testimony like that? Do you focus on that moment in time? Do you speak of God's saving work in your life with gravity and passion because he changed your eternity? He reconciled you to himself, and he settled your debt. To be people of gratitude, we must start with thanksgiving over our salvation. And the Bible is clear. Because God is the one who saves, he is the one who is the recipient of our thanks. 
Someone who understands this correctly will be characterized by gratitude because it's an outward expression of an inward reality. It's the action on our part. It's our response to all that God has done. It's important to remember that. So let's write down number three, direct your thanks to God. Direct your thanks to God. In our passage, it says abounding in thanksgiving. Several other translations will say overflowing with thanksgiving or overflowing with gratitude. I like to think of the word overflowing because it reminded me of my kids with their giant cups of water at home. And um, it's the, there's a funny thing about kids where they'll go from I'm not thirsty at all to, oh, I think I'm dying, I need water right now, like in a flash. It's amazing. So I've told my kids, even the littlest ones, because we have one of those refrigerators with the water dispenser on the front, that they are welcome to get water whenever they need it, however much they need. But you have to be careful not to let your cup overflow. And it's been educational, right? Trial and error. And the floor in front of my fridge is always clean because it's always getting wiped up because their little bodies are just not big enough to be able to see over the edge of that cup to know when it's full. But sometimes a miracle happens and they'll get it just right and they'll make that slow and steady trek across the kitchen to set it down on the table. They sigh with relief. Most of them do a little dance. And then they take these Bible bookstore twisty straws and they shove it in the top, which makes the water spill out everywhere. It's so close. But that's what Paul's talking about here to the Colossians and to us. Your thanks in your life should overflow even when your peaceful existence is disturbed. What should spill out is an attitude of gratitude. And maybe some of you were thinking about the quote from Amy Carmichael when I was talking about cups overflowing, when she said, a cup brimful of sweetness cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, no matter how suddenly jarred. Do you know someone like that? Someone who is thankful in all things, in all circumstances? Are you known in that way? That no matter what happens in life, no matter how hard your full cup of water is bumped or how many Bible bookstore twisty straws are shoved in, that what spills out is gratitude, thankfulness, worship, praise, sweetness. Because think about it. A lack of gratitude is a pretty good indicator that we don't have a right understanding of who Christ is and what his work has accomplished. Instead of thankfulness for our salvation, we start to doubt. We let accusations and lack of trust creep in and subvert what we first received as true. Paul's saying, don't let it happen. But also, don't worry. We're not hopeless. We are not without hope. To do, in order to do this more, we have to just do it more. We have to be looking for things to be thankful for, and we're going to get better at it. As you walk in him, as you go about your daily activities, look for things to be thankful for. Be abounding in thanksgiving. And if you're struggling, go back to the beginning. Remember the deep roots, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, that if you are truly saved, he's got you. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I love 2 Corinthians 9.15. Start there. I had a friend in college who was very much like this, and somehow she convinced me to go running with her very early in the morning before class, and I hated it. 
I don't like running. As soon as I start running, I would like to stop running. <laughs> and I remember clearly being particularly whiny one morning, and she said to me, you know, I don't actually like running either, which was shocking because I thought she was one of those weird people that really likes running. <laughs> but she said to me, she said, but I love that God has given me the ability to do it. So while I run, I thank God that I have two legs. I thank God that they are strong legs. I thank God that I have lungs that can handle the stress of the extra exertion. I thank God for the breeze on my face that's keeping me cool. She said, God has given me the gift of running right now. I might not always have it, so I'm going to thank him for it. And that was when I learned that important lesson that some people really can be thankful in anything. I want to be more like that. I want to spend time with people who are like that. So if you are struggling, get around people who are like that. Look at your week that's ahead of you. How can you change your perspective to see the gifts of God all around you? And sometimes that means we need to eliminate things that steal from our gratitude. Maybe there's something in your life that you know makes you ungrateful or discontent. Cut it out. Stop reading it. Stop watching it. Stop following it. Stop going there. Just click unfollow, unsubscribe, and see what a difference it might make. Or maybe you don't really like running the course that God has for you at the moment, but are you looking for reasons to be thankful along the way? Maybe you're not thankful for the job that you have, but are you thankful that you have a job? Does God provide for your needs through that? Maybe you have a little one who is challenging you with disobedience at what feels like every single turn. But are you remembering that thankfully there are some naughty things that they used to do that they don't do anymore? And are you peeking in on them when they're sleeping to remember that you are thankful that they exist? Is your marriage not what you thought it would be or your health? Because maybe it's really hard to find reasons to be thankful, like really, really hard I wonder, have you talked to God about that? Have you spent time in prayer asking God to help you see what you can't see right now? Confessing to him that you know that gratitude is the mark of a believer's life, but you just can't get there. If we trust that God is the one who is able to root us and build us up and establish us, can't he also help us be thankful? Isn't he able to remind us of what's true even when we can't see it? Truth like Ephesians 1.3, which tells us that his gifts are as boundless and endless as he is. Ephesians 1.3 says, he has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or truth like from Psalm 68.19, he knows our daily circumstances and he's with us. Psalm 68.19 says he daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And the truth that there is a day coming when everything that is wrong about our world will be made right. You know that's true because of him, and it will be true because of him. So thank him. Next week, there's going to be lots of people standing around tables talking about what they're thankful for without ever acknowledging the giver of those good gifts in their life. He created all things. We don't throw our random I'm thankful for's out into the universe. We direct our thanksgiving, our praise, our worship to God. As women, we have lots of words to spend every day. 
Some of us have more than others. Some roll them over. Some they expire. It works differently for all of us. But we have lots, right? So let's try to spend more and more of those words on gratitude. I have, I have two ideas for you. Let's spend our words on gratitude, number one, in prayer to God. In prayer to God. Let's tell God, thank you. Because when we pray to thank God for anything in our lives, we are praying to the God of Revelation 4.11. Revelation 4.11, the heavenly beings say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He is worthy. So he gets our thanks first. When we spend time thanking God in our prayers, it's then going to naturally overflow into our daily speech. So number two, we need to speak thanksgiving out loud to people around us. To the people of God within the church, when you see someone serving sacrificially or when someone does something kind for you, tell them, I am thankful to God for you. Also, share your praises and your answered prayers with your small group ladies. Let them say thanks, God, alongside you. And also, be grateful out loud to people around you all the time. A grateful attitude goes a long way in making the gospel attractive to unbelievers. I was reminded of this reality recently when I was standing in line with a friend, having a conversation, completely unaware that somebody else was listening in. And as awkward as that is, it was a good, good reminder to me that I need to pay attention to the words, to the tone, and to the attitude that I have because you never know when someone is listening. In the book, Choosing Gratitude, Nancy DeMoss says it this way, a grateful woman will be a breath of fresh air in a world contaminated by bitterness and discontentment. And the person whose gratitude is a byproduct of and a response to the redeeming grace of God will showcase the heart of the gospel in a way that is winsome and compelling. That's called being salt and light. Because truly, deeply settled gratitude as a lifestyle can only come from those who acknowledge the giver of the greatest gift, the person who has received God's redeeming grace. That's what we see here in the Colossians, the one who has heard the gospel preached, acknowledging Christ as Lord, and God has caused the gospel to take root in their lives, leading to a life of obedience. This is the person who is overflowing with thanksgiving. And for us, when you and I remember the gospel every day, and we recognize the saving and sanctifying work of God in our lives, it becomes a whole lot easier to tell him, thank you. As I was studying this passage, I kept thinking of the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I can't say for sure, but I am, I'm pretty sure that Paul would have liked this song. And especially the third verse. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'm just going to say it. So, I don't know if anyone was nervous. But this is what it says. It says, my sin. So when we're singing this song, we're talking about ourselves. We're not doing the L-shaped amen. We're not talking about somebody else. We're talking about my sin. And then he says, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. It's almost like he takes a step back and he says, hold on a minute. I cannot believe I'm about to say what I'm about to say. This is huge. My sin, not in part, but the whole. 
Every single time I have stood against the Lord, every single time I have missed the mark, every single time I have chosen my way over God's way, all of that is nailed to the cross, is on Christ. He took it. So you know what? Me, I bear it no more. And then how does he end? What's his response? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. We're going to head into Thanksgiving next week, ladies, and my prayer is that your thankfulness would spring forth, overflowing from that deep well of gratitude because you know that your sin, all of it, has been dealt with on the cross, and you have peace with God through Christ the Lord, that no matter what comes in this life, you are held tightly by him. You are deeply rooted and firmly established. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, I feel like I have to start by saying thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the opportunity to remember, to think about the time that we were saved, to think about what it means that we have been made alive in Christ. Thank you for that opportunity in this passage. And I pray that as we go here into our small groups and as we go into Thanksgiving next week, that we would be women who are overflowing with gratitude. I pray that we would be changed by the reading of your word and the teaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.